Hi, welcome to the Afrocoon podcast. This is your host, Ropa, and I'm so excited to have you here. Listen, listen, this is a podcast where every single episode is an interview with a person of African descent living in Europe. So why don't you come along with me as I get to hear some of the most interesting, inspiring, heartwarming, and also funny stories from some really, really, really dope people. Yeah? And welcome to the Afrocomb podcast, episode nine. I am very tired. (laughs) Yeah, I would have loved to come on here and just been like a beacon of hope and energy. But no, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted by the year. I'm exhausted by summer. I'm exhausted by the pandemic. I'm just tired, you know. Um, So that's how I'm doing. Nobody asked, but I thought I'd let you all know anyway. But I'll tell you what I'm not exhausted by, though. I'm not exhausted by creating all this awesome content for you guys. And I want to thank every single one of you because we have reached 3,000 downloads. Yay! I need to figure out how like other podcasters put that like applause in their recordings because me sharing for myself probably sounds really stupid but for real for real though we reached 3,000 downloads and I am so thankful um thank you to every single one of you who listens thank you to those of you who share the podcast with your friends with your loved ones and also thank you to people who go out of their way to encourage me either with like via text message or you send me a dm or you just comment under our posts on instagram that you're enjoying the content i appreciate you so much so let's keep pushing let's keep let's get to 4000 let's get to 5000 downloads um i'm really i'm really thankful and i'm also glad that the the content is resonating with you all that much so yeah we are at episode 9 out of a 12 episode pilot season of afrocomb podcast so we're almost at the end and i encourage you all to cherish these last couple of interviews that we have Um, And I'm really thrilled to introduce you to today's guest, whose name is Wadzanai Motsi Katai. The fact that whenever I refer to this lady, I will always say her entire four-syllable first name plus double-barrel surname is to me a testament to how much of a powerhouse I believe her to be. She is a political activist, and yes, Wadzi, I'm just going to put it out there. Um, She studied international relations, Uh, she's Zimbabwean, and moved to Germany in 2017. And since then, she has been pursuing a master's in public administration and also working with a lot of incredible uh, initiatives such as the Center for Intersectional Justice and Cherry on top, Wazanai is the founder of Sangano Business Hub, which is a collective initiative from diaspora and Afro-German entrepreneurs in Germany. It promotes the creation of African wealth by supporting entrepreneurs with information, resources, and services that empower and build businesses. 
I think that this Sangano Business Hub is incredible for so many different reasons, but Woods and I and I discussed that at great length. So we're going to cut to the episode. But actually, before we do that, before we do that, I just want to let you guys know the two things that I love, love, love about this interview. The first reason is that Woods and I's story allows us to explore how complex migration really can be um, because it's it's never black and white. It's never this thing of I hated home and now I'm here and it's the best thing ever. It's a highly, highly, highly nuanced experience to have to be uprooted or uproot yourself from what you know as home and go and start over in a completely different place. And I just love how Wadzi through her story intelligently and gracefully articulates this phenomenon. The second reason why I loved this interview is that we talked about grief and particularly grieving with the added layer of having to be far away from those you love. And I think that is a version of of, of things that only people who've had to immigrate might be able to re- relate to. And I, I also love that Wadzi allowed us into that part of her life. So Let's check out this interview and also remember to stick around until the end so that I tell you all about what's next. Okay. What's an eye? Hi. Thank you so much for just coming to the pod. Like, no, thank welcome. you for having me. Welcome. <laughs> I'm really excited about this interview just because I think you're such a vibe. And I don't even know where this is going to go, but I'm <laughs> okay. looking forward to it. Um, so I have a random question for you. Okay. What was your favorite snack when you were growing up in Zimbabwe? Oh, favorite snack? Yes. Okay, so I was a boarder in primary school. In and we, primary school? In primary school. Wow. Well, from grade two until grade seven. Okay. Um, but we had these, I can't even remember what they're called now. They were like little cakes, which actually now to think of it, they might be, might have been cornbread with like honey on top or like syrup on Did top. Did we grow up in the same Zimbabwe? Hey, what I, was went to, I went to like <laughs> farmer school, boarding school. Ah. Yes, before pre-2000. Oh, wow. Okay, so, so very different existence back so then. So it was like a niche snack, like it was specific to... No, it was like a little cake, but I think it was just cornbread with syrup on it, oh, to be honest like now. But it yeah. was nice and like very sweet. That I like really sweet awesome. things as a kid. <laughs> Why did they send you to boarding school at seven? At seven? Well, because we moved. So okay. I started school... Um, when we were still in Maronda and then my parents moved to Arare and they just didn't want to disrupt me, which ah. I think actually was a good choice. Right. Like I really enjoyed, right. I enjoyed primary school. Well, maybe not so much the boarding part, but I got used to it. It taught me to be this? really independent. Diggelfold? Okay. It's right yes. outside Maronda. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so you were actually born in Maronda, which is like a smaller city? No, I was born in Wange. Oh my, my parents goodness. were like traveling. Oh my. <laughs> My dad okay. moved around a lot for work. So. And then you yeah. grew up in Marundra and Harare. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty moved awesome. to Harare in high school. And the Zimbabwe that you remember. And I have to put it this way because Zimbabwe <laughs> has changed drastically. That is true. What was the most, like, the most, what is the most nostalgic thing for you 
like if you think of the Zimbabwe you grew up in versus the Zimbabwe you that I know now. That you know now. Um, I mean, I don't know if I know Zim that well now, to be quite honest. I mean, I know kind of the politics, but day-to-day life, obviously, mm. not as much. Um, I would say, like, the thing I missed the most was kind of the normalcy of everything. Mm. Like, we didn't worry so much about, like, whether or not we would have like our lunchtime tea with, like, jam and bread sandwiches, mm. whatever, because, like... That was kind of the way things were. And then around 2000, you could see things changing because, like I said, I went to school with a lot of kids who lived on farms, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them were, like, white kids, right? Right. And so, you know, there was a time when they came back from home being like, oh, we've got guests on our farm, and our parents have to move, and we're not sure what's going on. Okay, so can you give a little more context? So you are addressing <laughs> land reform. I, I, I love am that addressing you stumbled upon this. Reform. Okay, so just give us a little more context on what exactly was happening in Zimbabwe at this time. Okay, so at the time, um, I mean, it was a transition around 2000, 2001, and depending on who you ask, they will tell you that there were different <laughs> motivations for what happened. Okay. Um, but essentially, um, the government okayed for war veterans to take over predominantly white-owned farms. and. Right. A, in an effort to kind of give the land back to the people. Um, a lot of people argue that it was politically motivated as a way to keep the ruling party in power for a while longer. Right. Um, I mean, but it was also one of those things where we hadn't really done any form of land redistribution seriously since, since the 19- independence. Yeah, yeah, since independence, partly right. because that was kind of written into the foundational documents of the country as part right. of the agreement for gaining independence that we wouldn't redistribute land too mm-hmm. quickly, mm-hmm. which oh, a lot of people that. don't know okay. that. <laughs> yeah. This and was so, part of the, oh, wow. Lancaster House Agreement. So, okay. I, I mean, I'm, I don't want to, like, you know, misquote the specifics, but there definitely was language in there to say that we won't redistribute land too okay. quickly. So and some provisions to protect the white farmers at the time and so that kind of lasted for like 20 years 20 years and, and then our, 99 and then our government was like well we're about to lose power so let's give people what they've been asking for for a while which they needed yeah. um and then kind of the zimbabwe we know today broke loose where it wasn't an organized process there was a lot of violence unnecessarily yeah. um you know people were literally thrown out of their homes um, right. some were killed in the process and then polit- politics got involved and it became kind of this very politicized um discussion around like land rights yes redistribution equity economic justice and yeah, it, yeah. i mean it, it is very complicated for it anyone is. who's interested there's a lot <laughs> of really good books out there. right a lot of information on i, I think it's also like uh, it's got many sides to yeah. it mm-hmm. it's that you know colonization did do a lot of damage to like indigenous mm-hmm. people in yeah. whatever part of africa yeah. um and on some level like we need to, to be empowered to thrive in our own land yeah but at the same time how it was executed at least in the context of zimbabwe was very problematic very problematic very questionable and some could argue might not have been effective Mm -hmm. um, because of where the country is now and now that we do have the land so okay back to (laughs) i'm sorry thank you for giving us context but back to dickleford so some of your classmates came back and you literally had classmates whose parents had been kicked off. Yeah, I mean, at the time I was 12 years old, so I didn't really quite understand yeah. what was happening. It was just a very weird conversation of like, yeah, this is happening at home. It's a little yeah. bit unstable. All of a sudden we went from 
you know, we would spend the term um, at school and visit our parents like maybe once a month. And all of a sudden we had to go home every weekend. Every weekend your parents had to come pick you up because it was the beginning of like fuel shortages and a little bit of political unrest. And so the school didn't even want to have that level of responsibility for other people's children, right? And so, I mean, now it kind of makes sense. You're like, oh, okay, that's what was happening. But at the time it was very much like, okay, well, I get to go home more often and, you know, my friends, they're not quite secure. But, hey, it's like primary school. I find this so fascinating that, I mean, this is the case for a lot of people, um, that you grew up in the in the middle of you you know a little bit of the Zimbabwe mm. before the turmoil yeah but then you grew up in like an unstable Zimbabwe you grew up in yeah but I mean I think because I think about that a lot actually in comparison to my younger siblings and I think they've actually had the worst of it to be honest because they've never known a stable Zimbabwe I I, I have never right? known a stable Zimbabwe I, exactly. I was four when land reform happened what? so okay. I know so I mean and, and that's <laughs> yeah. kind of the status quo now where people don't know what it means to have a functioning economy yeah, or no, absolutely. trust the banks with your money mm. or like groceries are secure. Not a that part of my upbringing my whatsoever. Mind. I have a little cousin. She's, I think, eight years mm-hmm. younger than me. One of her first words or first phrases when she was learning how to speak mm-hmm. was Magetsi Ayenda. What? Which tra- is translated like electricity is gone. We just That's have the power cut. There's a power cut. That's, That's way translation. too much. Right? So, I mean, it's even worse for her because she's like Let's two see. and she just grows up like socialized to know that actually power cuts happen all the time. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's intense it's kind of the world that we live in where yeah. people like, yeah, it's just... I don't know. Even like kids are afraid to see people go into hospital because right. they're like, we don't know if they'll come out. You know, like yeah. that's intense. That's you know, that crazy. kind of level of just, yeah. I Would mean. you say <laughs> that you know, growing up in this Zimbabwe and mm-hmm. having this like, you know, a little bit of the the, the good one mm-hmm. and a little bit of unstable one. Yeah. Would you say that is what kind of sparked this interest in politics? That this fire that you have. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. So I can... Because one of the questions you asked me was like, at what moment was the activist born? Yes. Yeah. And I don't... Like, I remember there was there was a like a government exercise. You remember Mrambatrina? Right. Maybe, where like the government decided it was time to like clean the streets of the cities mm. and essentially like any kind of illegal housing, any kind of like vendor stalls, all that stuff was literally like just moved off the street and Mm -hmm. people were packed into lorries and like left in the middle of nowhere as a way to clean up the city. And some people, I remember some people, some Zimbabweans actually were like, oh, at least, you know, the cities are clean. We don't have like Mm -hmm. people just putting up spaces everywhere. Um, But also like a lot of people, I mean, their lives were uprooted. I remember people writing A-levels who like had to be separated from their families because their families were taken to a rural area that wasn't their home, you know? Mm. And I remember having a conversation with my mom around this, like, you know, what are we supposed to do? Like, can we right. do anything? And like, why are uh, we doing are anything? I was around 16, 17. Okay, so you're, you're already I'm thinking. I'm like, like thinking like, okay, something is wrong with this picture. Can right. we do something different, you <laughs> yes. know? Um, and I remember very clearly, she, she was like, what can we do? Tingadi, you know, mm. that's what she said to me. And I had that moment of like, wait, something is broken here. Like, if we can... And I'm not talking about charity or, like... I think, yes, charity is important, you know, giving people blankets in a time where, like, they've been displaced. Like, that is necessary, obviously. But for me, it was something 
is much more foundationally broken here. The structure is broken where someone mm. can very easily uproot someone else's life and toss them in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Like there's something very broken in a society right. where that's okay, you right. know? And so I think in that moment I was kind of like, okay, well, I have to figure out like how I can play my part to make things better. And that's where part of that was born. But also I just, I've been thinking a lot more about my father and kind of the legacy he lived. And I think my parents were always those kind of giving, open, right. honest people who did what they could for their community. So in yeah. some ways, I think they're the ones who kind of nurtured and fostered that. Right. And then I kind of just spun it and like my community is a little bit bigger than like you kind of what I thought it should be. Because I think something that you can take for granted very easily when you are, uh, you know, when it comes naturally to Mm -hmm. you to want to give and think, how can I help someone else? One thing that we take for granted is that it's kind of normal to not live a life outside of yourself. Like it's actually, Mm -hmm. you can literally go through (laughs) life and never care. Never have to. Never have to really concern yourself with what are the minority groups Mm -hmm. feeling in this or someone who's less privileged than me. So Mm -hmm. I was actually going to ask like also where did that come from? This ability to devote energy to something that (laughs) in some sense has nothing to do, like doesn't directly affect you. And you, like you're saying, your parents were, that's the legacy that they've left for you. Absolutely. I mean, my parents kind of, even for something as simple as like someone needs a place to stay to, you know, there's stories about my dad having, like going to a church group, you know how like each of the the churches, they have like the women's group and the men's group. They all do like the charity activities in that way. And for him, his men's group was a little bit more in a little bit more of an affluent community, but also brought people who weren't as economically wealthy Mm. um, as the staple in quotes. (laughs) And like, I mean, my father's legacy is that he made a way to actively build the bridges between those two different kinds of people but in that that, same space where he would be the one who would like take people who couldn't afford to go to the meetings on their own Mm. or didn't have the bus fare he would drive them even though he couldn't afford the petrol himself you know that's the kind of man he was and I mean yes I think my definition of community and like how to help the world he would not be as happy about it (laughs) I have to say like he very much was like leave politics alone. But at the same time, I learned it from him and my mom. Like, their giving attitude in nature, that's kind of where it came from. And so I think I just took it two steps further than they would have liked to see it go. We are going to circle back to what your definition of this is and how you are living it out today. Um, Let's talk about what happened. Okay, so Mm -hmm. at what point did you decide to move to Germany? What happened between Mm. high school and 2017? So you said you moved here. (laughs) The highlights, wasn't it? The highlights. (laughs) High school, okay. Uh, After high school. After high school, um, Okay, I'm going to I'm going to go into some detail about some of the highlights okay, cuz maybe it helps someone, this, who knows. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, I had applied to go to college um in the states. Scholarships, good thing. Right. Um but I actually didn't get in my first time round. So, I had to spend a year working figuring out what kind of school I wanted to go to again, and then I went a year later. And for me that was actually really good. Like I, by the time I got to university, I knew what I wanted. Right. So, I spent 4 years de- there and literally did everything. I joined every other club. I played tennis at varsity level. I studied abroad. I ran for student government. All that kind of stuff. Busy like, body. Yeah, I mean, mm. I just 
wanted to do it all because yeah. I knew what I was there to do by right. then, you know? Right. And by the time I left, so in my senior year was um, vice president for academic affairs and student government, had a Look great time mm-hmm. just enjoying trying to figure <laughs> stuff out. Yes. Um, and there was the first time that I was like, oh, okay, so what can I do to the structure to help improve things for people? And so In the States. In, in the States, at right. my university. And so one of the things that me and um, the people on our cabinet worked really hard for that senior year was making sure that you could bring experiences into the classroom. Mm. And so essentially we started talking to the faculty about experiential education, right, mm-hmm. and how people can how you teach through experiences, which in the academic setting people don't like, but a lot of people learn that way. And so, I mean, that has now kind of become embedded in the university's like approach to education, which is really, really cool for me, I think, Mm -hmm. to see kind of the fruits of that labor like 10 years on. After university, I did a fellowship looking at the motivation for youth political activism (laughs) in five countries around the world. It was really cool. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Egypt, Tunisia, Cambodia, the Czech Republic and Ghana. Mm-hmm. And that, that was really interesting, but very <laughs> revelation. So you yeah. lived in each of those five countries? For a couple of months by okay. myself. I mean, I made friends, met some connections there, but it was very much like independent right. study under the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I moved home because I'd always wanted to be home. And my then at the time boyfriend, future husband was in Zimbabwe. So I was like, well, it's time to go home. Um, so you guys had long distance it for a couple of years? Yeah, I mean, we'd actually, we dated a little, we dated after high school for two years, and then we broke up, and then you got came back together. together. When did so you guys meet? When we were playing bridge in high school. Oh, oh my goodness, that is so precious. Uh, did your bridge supervisor, teacher, know that you were going there to meet I boys? I don't even know. Actually, I don't know if he ever told them. Because I yeah. know you went to an all-girls school. Definitely. I know you went to I mean, that was like school. you had to join activities to meet the boys. Uh, of course, because that was literally the only way. I mean, way. that was the only like, way. Like, that was it, right. Okay, so but, you met you met him while you were playing bridge. Yeah, we met playing bridge in high school. Okay, and then you Anyways. dated after high school, and then... And then again after university um yeah and so i went home looked for a job in zim could not find one for a year again right because Mm. i mean zim at the time like had you kind of had to know someone who knew someone or know someone who would open the door Mm. um fortunately for me i got a great interview um for, with a public health organization, the Clinton Health Access Initiative. Right. Where I we didn't say what she studied in, in university. International relations. Okay. All right. Got it. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I worked in public health for two and a half years, supporting the government, working on pediatric HIV issues, which was really interesting for me because at that time I felt like I could give back, mm. you know, to the country and do something a little bit more useful, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like I think my need for like structural change, structural change, Kate, like I don't know. I mean, yeah. there's only so much you could do within a broken system. And right. by the time I left, I was very much like, okay, I need, I need some time. I need to yeah. figure out like what I can do a little bit more effectively. And then we actually left Zim because my husband is a software engineer and can't get paid for that kind of work back home. And so absolutely, we not. we're just looking for new opportunities. Where did he study? You know? He studied in Malaysia. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. I was yeah. about to ask if you can study software engineering in Zimbabwe. I'm just curious. I mean, I think yeah, there are courses can. and certificates at the moment. Okay. I don't know if there is like, like a, a university curriculum. Right. Um, okay, yeah. so you guys moved here because your husband was going to... I think Germany is a great place. For yeah, and I mean, he's doing fantastic here. Right. It's very much like a... For software engineers, it's kind of a, 
well, a mecca at the moment. Let's right. put it that way. Like people are really learning, and yeah, I mean, it's great. When yeah. you initially decided to move back mm-hmm. home, did you have any intention of potentially relocating, or was that something you did because Zim was just <laughs> yeah tricky? Um, I mean, when I went home, my intention was to stay for sure. Right. And I mean, I'd been away for about five years. Right. I really just wanted to be like back with family, yeah. be back in the community. Yeah. Um, I think I left because at the time, I mean, and I'm trying to compare it to what it is now. Like I know Zim is really tough now, so yeah. I don't want to kind of minimize what people are going through right now. Um, but at the same time, then for me, like it was just too much of a struggle every day. Like always having to worry about whether or not you can find fuel to get to the job that you need to get mm. to, right? It's not like people want fuel to go gallivanting around right. the country. They're just trying to do their basic day-to-day functions. Right. Um, so that was really frustrating. And then I also felt like, you know, if I really wanted to help my family, like to support my family financially, like I wasn't going to be able to do it in Zim. Like I yeah. needed to leave to be able to, to make enough money to do something useful. Right. But even then, like on the other side of having been like, okay, leave Zim, go somewhere else, try and make something of yourself. It's not that easy on the other side either. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What month did you move to Germany? February. So it's cold. Yeah, but I mean, I'd gone to school in Iowa in so the US. Like, this is way nicer. But like, walk me through your like, emotions <laughs> in that first week in Germany. Like, yeah. are you excited or are you, what is, what is happening in your mind in that first week? Truthfully, yes. I just lost my grandmother the weekend before. So oh, no, part yeah. of it was, okay, do I, should I leave? Like, okay. Right. And I'd already bought the ticket. We'd been planning it for a while. So we had the funeral and I left right afterwards. Mm. So that was hard, I have to say. Right. Um, and leaving my family in that moment, part of me felt like maybe I should have stayed, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, it was great to be reunited with my husband of course and because he had because he'd already left yeah he'd been here for two months right um so yeah I mean there was just a lot of feeling and confusion I guess has Um, that has that feeling gone away over the three years that you've left that you've been here of being so far away from your family when yeah no I mean and I, as you know, last year was particularly hard. We lost both my father and my other, um, my paternal grandmother, grandmother right? right? And so it's just, it's really made me think about like what you have to sacrifice to be somewhere else, to do good things for yourself and the people you care about. Right. Um, and also the fact that like I, I'm also recognizing my privilege and that I actually got to go home and see my dad before he passed. Yeah. Um, even if it was for a short while, but not everyone gets to do that. Most people only find out about their yeah. loved ones passing, and even then they can't afford to go home. And, and for well, me, that's yeah. terrible. Like, I don't think anyone should have to go through that. That's not fair. What's the toughest, or well, what's, what's the toughest thing about this? Is it that you weren't there mm-hmm. when, when in their final moments, like the last two years you hadn't been there? Mm-hmm. Or is it tough that now that they're gone, you're not with your family? Or is it both? <laughs> it's very much both. <laughs> right. Because um, you think about, should I have stayed for the past two years and actually spent that time with my family and, yeah. you know, gotten to know my dad a little bit better? That would have been, like, the most I would have been home as an adult, I think, mm. um, had I chosen to stay. Mm. And so for me, that's really frustrating. Like, it feels like two years lost. And I know it's not lost. I, 
like I know it's 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 part of life. You grow up, you move. Right. You know, people do things, but it is frustrating that people. Right. Like, and young people are forced to make this choice, and a lot of young Africans are being forced to make this choice. Um, and then we're portrayed as kind of like, you know, swimming across seas and essentially scrambling for a better life in Europe, when really the reality is much more complex and much more nuanced and much more painful than that. And yeah. I don't think people humanize that enough, honestly, and right. they don't really know what people sacrifice to be somewhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. And I don't yeah. think Germany has gotten any more straightforward from the moment <laughs> I arrived, to be quite honest. Still a complex place to be. It's easy for people, for immigrants to be perceived mm-hmm. as these people that are just, we're just happy to be here. Mm, you know, we're exactly. Just, oh, you we're should be just, grateful to be here. grateful to be here. <laughs> and the sacrifice that you're making mm. is, I would honestly rather be with my mother right now. Like, today's a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Like, I would rather have woken up and cleaned the house with her mm-hmm. and gone to, like, a I don't know, vegetable market yeah, and then know? come home and we make sadza and be just kiki. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful that there was no power cut today here in Germany. But at the same time, that Is doesn't it work. Like, <laughs> it's not that deep. <laughs> Solar energy. I'm just like, yeah, but is it? Is it? It might be grossly overrated Mm. when you then put it into context with what you're having to sacrifice, like Mm -hmm. things like spending time with your loved ones, and it's also, it's also in the other direction. I think in your case, it's Mm -hmm. it's it's grief Mm -hmm. that you you uh, you lose someone that you would have loved to spend more time with. It's also the other direction. Like my brother just got married. Yeah. And you know, in my exactly. in my culture, we have a, it's a whole. So he got customarily married, oh, nice. traditionally married, yeah. and I am a tete, the brother, you had the a husband's role, wife. You know? I had a role in that, <laughs> and I am the only sister. I am the only girl in my family. Yeah. So I had a role in that, and just a weekend ago, uh, they we they had what they call kuperekwa, where oh, yeah. they 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 bring the brides mm-hmm. to the mother-in-law's yeah. homestead or the the uh, yeah the husband's home, mm-hmm. and again the tete has a role in that, you yeah, know. And absolutely. my mom called me and she was like, "You are supposed to be apparently how it works is I also just discovered this. <laughs> apparently how it works is you, the the uh, daughter-in-law, what do we call her, the bride? Yeah, she she does like these simple tasks around Lord. the house and then. And then you give her money for doing it. Yeah. And it's like a tradition that's yeah, been, I know, there I've been there for years. You've been there, right? Yes. And apparently, like, Tete is supposed to also be... You're supposed to be giving to, the money. I'm supposed to be giving the money. Yes. And, do you know, one of my cousins who's six years old, she was the Tete who was oh, there. Are you goodness. kidding me? She is six years old. And shout out to her for representing yeah. the Tetes. But, I mean, this is also a sacrifice in another direction that I'm exactly. making where I'm like, yeah, it's cute that I had glue vine and whatever. Yeah. I was doing over the Christmas break. <laughs> but at the same time. At the same time, I've yeah. had to like sacrifice that. And yeah, so mm-hmm. do you feel like because of this uh this this separation from your family, mm-hmm. is that strong enough to make you actually go back home? Mm-hmm. Or like where where are you at when it comes to like the pros and cons and tipping it out, like balancing yeah. it out? I mean, quite honestly, um, at the end of last year, I was almost at that point where I was like, okay, well, maybe just go home. Like, mm. if I'm going to struggle here, I might as well struggle at yeah. home. Yeah. Um, and then a friend of mine came from Zim, and she was like, really? Like, life is tough, and I don't know mm. how people are surviving. Yeah. And you might as well get comfortable wherever you are, because, like, you know, things don't look like they're going to change anytime soon. And for me, that kind of sucked, because I don't think I'd ever 
considered Berlin as home yet or mm. home in the long term, even though I've been here for three years, but still yeah. it felt kind of temporary. Like yeah. We're doing like a second college stint or something, <laughs> you know, because right. I'm also doing my master's, so it kind of made sense. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's time to take a slightly different approach. And I would like to be able to travel home more frequently than I yeah. do now, for yeah. sure. Um, but also one of the things I've realized in my time here is a lot of what... I mean, yes, there are definitely structural things that could be fixed on the ground back home, mm-hmm. right? But a lot of the pressure points, particularly economic pressure points on the continent, they come from international organizations. They come from foreign governments. And this is where they are, right? And right now we have an opportunity, like for mm-hmm. as long as I'm here, to help reshape some of that conversation. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit more of a mindful approach towards policy and politics right. back home. So yeah, this is something I did mm-hmm. not put in the in the pre mm-hmm. the prompts, yeah. the notes <laughs> that I sent over. But yeah. uh, what do you feel like your role is as a as a Zimbabwean away from Zimbabwe mm. or an African away from Africa? What do you feel do you actually even feel like you have a part that you can be playing, which I guess from what you just said yeah. is yes. Because uh, there's this, I don't want to call it guilt, but this, I don't know what we can call Burden. it, where it's like you ran away. So, you know, what do you, you, do li- yeah, what, you know nothing, <laughs> Jon Snow, like you left, <laughs> you don't know our struggles, you know? So yeah. it's like, are you even in a, in a position? It's really something that I'm constantly trying to yeah. consolidate in my mind. Am I even in a position where I can get involved in any kind of anything mm. to do with what's happening on the ground back home when yeah. I have left Mm -hmm. and if the answer to that is yes what role am I playing in that so I think that question is actually a matter of perspective okay right and I mean I hear you I've definitely gotten into arguments with people who are like you should not say anything like you don't know what's going on and I agree actually like I don't I don't think I know what the day-to-day life struggle of being in Zim is right right now absolutely and that's why in all my work it's not a matter of I am the spokesperson for the continent. I'm the spokesperson. No, I am not the spokesperson <laughs> yeah, for yeah. anybody. I'm yeah. telling you my perspective as an African born and raised in Zimbabwe, living in the diaspora, right? right. It's just a different experience, right. right? And I'm telling you why I left. And in all my conversations, I always say, talk to the people on the ground. Like, go back. If you want to figure mm. out a program, if you want to see if, um, I don't know, your new initiative, like Africans appreciated or whatever. Yes, you can have a conversation with people here, right? So we can maybe give you a heads up on like what you should be thinking about, but you still need to go and have that same conversation with people on the ground. Mm. Like you can't use me as your proxy and be like, okay, check, we've spoken to all the Africans. Like right. it doesn't work that way. Right. Okay. But I still do think, and for the better or worse, I think we do have a role to play here, right? Because we do know what life is like back home. Mm. And we also have access to different stakeholders, players, power players in this space to be able to shift some of the things that are going on back Back home. home. So, for example, a lot of the work around um, campaign politics, political campaigns, not just like at the community level, at the national level, presidential campaigns, is actually... There's a lot of work being done to support that by international foundations that work mm. on democracy. So you have like the NDI, the National Democracy Institute, I think, um, based in the US. You have a lot of different organizations, Freedom House is another. Mm-hmm. But funnily enough, German political foundations play some of the biggest roles on the continent right now, right? They're organizing campaign managers. They're having meetings with like the campaign managers for the different political parties. But 
it's you see it's it's Germans working in Africa who are facilitating that conversation, not Africans who are either living on the continent see, or abroad I already, facilitating those conversations. See, I already have like, like seven, you know, like seven. <laughs> if I was a dashboard, yeah. like eight lights just went off as you were yeah. speaking because I was also like, I guess this is the role that we as Africans living in Germany mm-hmm. might have to play because I'm like, also on what grounds does, you know, someone who's German born and raised, whatever, mm. on what grounds are they able to fully understand and compre- comprehend what a campaign, a democratic campaign mm. or whatever, election campaign should look like mm-hmm. in Rwanda, you know, on what, it's kind of something that I'm, that went off in my mind where it's like also then you have this copy paste kind of situation Approach. where uh, because things happen a certain way mm-hmm. in on in Europe or in the first world, or people campaign a certain no, way, or people campaign a mm-hmm. certain way, then we need to go and just paste it onto the onto the continent. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is where like our involvement as Africans living in Europe, where we become yes a proxy in a sense, mm-hmm. where it's like okay, I do have the I I have the upbringing, mm-hmm. I have the connections, I have the understanding, mm-hmm. and. It's like you're something, you're a bridge between yeah. the two. Yeah, and I think that is the role that we have to play. And not just a bridge for Europeans who are interested in helping but don't know how, but a bridge for Africans who would like to experience something different, learn from it, and then also right. take it home. Right? right? Like I think we need to be able to facilitate that mutual exchange and yeah. in that not become arrogant about the position we so, call, I mean, that we hold, right? I right. don't think it's, because I, I, I also know a lot of diasporans who go home and they try and be the enlightened ones and kind of bring that colonialist attitude even to their own mm, people, which again, mm. I mean, that doesn't make sense, my guy. Yeah. Like, it's <laughs> a little bit right. more smart about like the things that we're doing, right. but we definitely do have a role to play, I think. Um, it's also so important with this whole going back home with this, mm-hmm. you know, on this high horse. Uh, it's also important to realize that like home is getting on without you. Absolutely. It's, it's painful it didn't to realize. Stop, it didn't yeah. stop because you left, right? It didn't right? stop because you left. <laughs> like no one is sitting at home saying we're waiting for, you know, like <laughs> Superman to come back in the third act mm. and save the day. Absolutely. Like, home went on without you. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of have that humility in a sense yeah. to, to start from scratch. Exactly. In a way. And relearn and, and listen. And relearn and listen yeah. and then take your... Take it from there. Yeah. Okay. So we've really tapped a little (laughs) bit into like your passion for politics Mm -hmm. and um, just being involved and people (laughs) and all of that. So earlier on in our conversation, you mentioned that you took things two steps further than your parents had ever intended Mm -hmm. and that now you have your own Wazanai, Motsikatai definition of what it means to be dare I say, activist. Okay. <laughs> Still working on that. So, I need yeah. to earn the credentials. Okay, that. but, but that, yeah. you have your own definition. What is it? What does that mean to you? I mean, I, I could not give you a sentence. Okay. I, I you don't can think, give me 12. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've never thought about it as a sentence, right? right? I just like, right now where I'm at, it's like, where are the gaps? What can I do? Let's do it, right? Mm. Like, literally, that's as much as I can think of just to keep moving one step in front of the other like that's as much as there is what percentage so right of now, your week is is gap is this what percentage of who you what you do right mm-hmm. now is you being an dare i say once again yeah. activist so i mean for me i've tried to incorporate it into all the work i do okay. so um like most of my professional history honestly i don't take a job unless i feel like i'm actually making a difference in that job yeah. right so professionally like 
whatever job I'm in at the moment. So right now I'm working for the Center for Intersectional Justice. Their platform is very much trying to like dismantle discrimination, oppression, mm -hmm. kind of systems and structures around that and educate and inform a community, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm supporting them and their work. For me, I consider that like an extension of my activism, right. using like my practical tools and know-how, project management, whatever, to support them. Right. I am also, so since I've been in Berlin, I've actually been working on a bunch of different projects. Um, one was a platform to look at political manifestos from parties, mm -hmm. which started out decently, but I think needed to take a different approach. And so I pivoted. Parties on the African continent or on in African Europe? Okay. No, on the African continent. So right. looking at elections in those contexts. Okay. Um, and then I joined a policy forum discussion mm -hmm. um, platform called African Affairs Forum Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, we're trying to have a slightly more Oh, these more buzzwords nuanced. I've never heard. I'm like... <laughs> There's a lot Which of stuff forum, going on where, in Berlin. What? Okay. There's a lot of I love like, it. underground I love stuff. It. Yeah. Um, but even then, like, kind of my experience in that forum and then w connecting with different people who are trying to build businesses, be entrepreneurs, it kind of... I mean, it made me aware of the challenges that we all similarly go fa like go through. Like, how do we get um, access to finances? How do mm. we get support to build a business? To structure like the work that we're doing? Um, how do we get connected to the right people to support our ventures? That kind of stuff. And so, mm. in thinking about this and talking with other activists and entrepreneurs in the space, like came up with this idea to actually build a co-working space slash resource center for African entrepreneurs, Sangano mm. Hub. Um, which is a meeting yes, place. Meeting in, place in Shona. Oh, love it. Yeah. Yes. And so, I mean, the idea is really to provide the foundation for a lot of the amazing ideas and yeah. initiatives that are already in the community um, yeah. and connect them to the support that they need to grow. Because even as a, I mean, I know I've, I've struggled with this since I've been in the city, but then you see like other communities kind of tapping into different resources, grants, fellowships, all this stuff, right. and building their businesses that are, I don't know, selling candied peanuts, which I mean, no harm, no foul. It's good that you want to sell candied peanuts, but yeah. I think for us, the mandate is so much bigger, and so we really do need the support to be able to realize kind of some of those dreams and visions. This um, is my favorite so, yeah. thing about you is that you, yes, I have favorite things about you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is that you are super action oriented. Okay. You know, you 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 see something and you're like, what are we doing about it? And yeah. then you do it. And like the Sangano Hub resonates mm -hmm. with me personally because I am a young African entrepreneur mm -hmm. and I'm also a student and having to, first of all, find the confidence to mm -hmm. believe that I can start something yeah. while trying to get this master's and still somehow pay my bills mm -hmm. already that is like, my dynamic is different from like a German child mm -hmm. who, let's say, doesn't even have to worry about what type of visa they're on before yep. they can think about being an entrepreneur. <laughs> my yeah. dynamic is different, so yeah. I need that place where I can, you know, go and mm -hmm. feel like there's other people who get it. Yeah, I also absolutely. need the information, so I have this kind of visa. What do, who do I need mm -hmm. to go to? Which office do I need to go to? What's my German level mm -hmm. at? Is there someone in the community who speaks better German who can go there with me or yeah. that kind of thing? It's so practical, yeah. and I'm excited to see um, where... Fingers <laughs> crossed. Fingers <laughs> crossed. I'm excited to see this take off mm -hmm. because, yeah, and this is also another thing is... With the, when it comes to young entrepreneurs, I think we meant you, we talked about this in our last Maybe, coffee yeah. date about how we have a lot of 
Africans doing stuff that's mm-hmm. political, yeah. that's, you know, like social. Yeah. But we don't have enough of this, let's push business now. Mm-hmm. Let's push Africans or support Africans into going in this direction yeah. of like, yeah. let's make the money. <laughs> See, but I mean, I also find that really interesting because... So one of the things that I've been doing as part of this project is doing the research around like what is what are the employment stats, right? What is like entrepreneurship looking like at the moment? Right. And there's not that much information on entrepreneurship of African diaspora, for sure. Mm. But there is a huge emphasis on it in policy right now because there's kind of the sense that like we can help you create jobs on your continent so that you don't migrate, right? Like mm. that's kind of this undertone of like mm. this entrepreneurship and tech drive on the continent. I would also say there's another slight undertone of like, mm. if you make money, you can buy our products, which mm. we're not really talking about enough, yeah. right? Because we aren't, we're not a manufacturing continent. We don't really have a lot of like um, processed goods that we produce, right? We export right. raw materials and we know that that's a challenge. So who, even if we have jobs and have money, whose products are we buying? Like whose right. economies are we supporting? We really need to think about that. But in this context, where everyone assumes that like you've left home and you're so grateful to be in Europe, right. there's 50% unemployment amongst Africans on the diaspora. Can you Are believe you that? Joking. Like that's nonsense for me. 50%. 50%. One in two. One in two. Doesn't have a job. Unemployed in an OECD country. Like that's nuts for me. One, two, the majority of those who are employed are overqualified for their job. Can you I mean, oh, so in this sense yeah. where everyone's like, you should be so grateful you're here. You're here and nobody wants to hire you because they're like, well, we're not quite sure if your skills match. Okay, Yeah, fine. and when they want to hire you, there's bureaucracy and mm-hmm. all these legal things about why they probably exactly, right? shouldn't hire you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, I mean, racism. Let's, yeah. like, I mean, <laughs> Let's put it out spade there. a spade. Yeah. Like, yeah. People are like, well, I can't pronounce that name. I don't want to deal with a brown person, right? Right. right? And then on top of that, when someone does give you a chance, right, they make you start at the bottom, even yep. though you're qualified to be middle, upper management. Right. And so for me, like all of these things together, I'm like, okay, fine. We do need to talk about entrepreneurship, but also entrepreneurship that kind of breaks the mold and challenges our understanding of what it means to run a business, right? right. And what it means for Africans to run their own businesses and employ other Africans. We have right. to start building a culture of like economic support within our own community if we're going to survive here. And right? you, you touched on something else also. If Okay, if you're not yet at the stage of entrepreneurship or you are not on the even on that path, mm-hmm. you are like, I want to go corporate or I want to just mm-hmm. work in tech and whatnot. That's also something that we need to be talking about mm-hmm. is negotiating salaries and yeah. making sure you are getting the... The position that you mm-hmm. deserve. So many conversations I have with Africans, like pe- just people from different places, like Nigeria, Morocco, whatever, mm-hmm. at work or different these kinds of professional yeah. settings. You talk to someone and they're like, they're like, oh, actually not anyone from the global south. So <laughs> someone yeah. from Indonesia as well. We talk and then they say something to me like. I am doing the work of a product manager, mm-hmm. but I am not called a product manager. I'm not paid and as I'm, one And I'm either. not paid as one either. And I'm like, okay, what about the other product managers on your team? What are they doing? Oh, I'm doing more work than them. Exactly. And I have more deadlines and I have mm-hmm. more products under my whatever, but I am not paid the same. And oh, you can't ask for a raise, right? You can't also be like, okay, I need, I need 
like I am doing more work and I should be paid as such and I should be called as such because then people also then are like, well, you should be grateful that we even hired you, yeah, right? Well, you have you an are, attitude you, problem, you right? Crossed, you crossed the, the Mediterranean. Like, why are you mad? Exactly. We gave, like, you, we gave you, like... What, what do you expect? What do you need? And yeah. kind of just this... Because even in our own community, I don't think we realize that as much. And one of the things that I found is that we're also not honest about the fact that, like, yes, people are struggling to get employment or people right. are being underpaid for their work or we're underpaying each other too. Like, yeah. there are instances where people are like, oh, yes, we would love you to do this, but we can't pay you, right? And this is something that someone, like, if my skin color was a little bit different, we wouldn't even entertain that conversation because right. you know that this is a paid job, yeah. right? And so we really need to rethink kind of our own approach yeah. as well and, and consider, okay, so how do I use my business or my skills or what I've learned to support yeah. other people to be able to advocate for more? Yeah, Right. I, I'm so excited for Sangano Hub yeah, and for great. just like <laughs> all the uh, all the different yeah. um, workshops and trainings that you're going to have because these conversations need to be happening. Absolutely, and it's always starts. And this was said in one of my earlier interviews mm -hmm. on this podcast that it also always starts with the mind. Like yeah. it always starts with having the conversation and then sparking something in someone to be mm -hmm. like, okay, I can be an entrepreneur. Okay, so what's the night? This has been great. Yes, like, this absolutely. Is, I have enjoyed every minute of this, but we are right at the end. Okay. I have one last question okay. for you. If someone or you mm -hmm. were to write your biography today about yeah. what's the night today, what would it be called? What's the night right now? Not, not seven <laughs> years from now when... This is going to be so <laughs> when inappropriate. When the book has been published. No, now, today. Okay, this is really inappropriate. I, so, so people need to, like, hear me first okay. before, before being like, what? So you know that stereotype of an angry black woman? Yes. My biography would be, I'm angry with reason. Like... There are things that are fucked up in this world. Excuse the I language. I love that. I love it. Yeah. You know, they're just certain, and I'm realizing just how, and maybe a little bit of his naivety, maybe I just need to get a little bit older and a bit more jaded and be like, well, people are people, you know? But mm. right now, there's certain things that, like, it's not okay how we treat each other. It's not yeah. okay how, like, callous we are about certain things. And I don't know. Even, you know, the. Anyway, that's how I feel about life. Yeah. So, for example, if you... What's a good example that comes to the top of my mind? And I don't want to be, like, very African-centric because it's very easy to be like, yes, people treat black people like shit. Like, yes, we know that. Like, that's mm. not okay. But even, like, very simple things. In Germany, I know people don't like talk, to talk about, like, domestic violence, for example, mm. right? And somehow we think that's cool. Like, mm. we just... You know, mm. if you if you get hit in your home, that's your business between you and your husband. I'm sorry, like that's not okay. Like we should be able to talk about stuff like that. One, two, when we talk about the environment and people are like, oh well, you know, Germany recycles, we're fine. No, Germany ships its recycling <laughs> to Asia. That's why you're fine. That's not okay. We need to have a conversation about like just how much you're contributing to somebody else's problem. Right. You know, or even the fact that <laughs> our dear beloved president can be like, ah. You know, my doctor told me to eat vegetables, and you know, potatoes. to his people, right? Mm. Well, he can afford meat. Mm. I'm sorry. That's not okay. My new slogan is Nyama <laughs> which means meat for everyone. <laughs> like, it's yeah. not okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. you can't laugh at someone else's struggle like that, especially yeah. when you're the one who caused it. Right. So, like, 
I am angry. You're angry. <laughs> I'm angry, but with reason. Yeah. I really love that. But then I thank you, thank you, thank, <laughs> thank you for you coming to the pod. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. that's it um of course as per usual make sure you add what's an eye on linkedin that's what's an eye motsi m-o-t-s-i dash katai k-h-t-a-i and you should also without fail uh follow sangano business hub on facebook and linkedin that is sangano s-a-n-g-a-n-o business hub on facebook and linkedin i also have some additional shameless plugs to get through this particular episode the first one is if you follow Afrocom on Instagram or Facebook, you're already aware. But the first shameless plug is we need to support Tino Chibebe in the publishing of his first book titled The Black Opportunity. Tino is a very young Zimbabwean man um, based in, the, in Belgium. And his book is exploring the challenges that black people um in Europe face when it comes to accessing venture capital. And he's also pointing to some solutions and opportunities that exist in that space. So I think this is a voice that needs to be heard. I think this is research that needs to be done. And the least that you and I can do is support this young man by um, pre-ordering his book. It's literally that simple. I will be sure to link every single thing on the episode description so that you can go and do that. The second shameless plug, and this is long overdue, but I've been meaning to plug this person for a very long time because I walk around with a chip on my shoulder about the fact that I struggle to use my own following or platform on Instagram to point to resources that um, have information about different issues that affect minority groups across the world. I also struggle with just like always being on top of like, you know, calling out injustices as they happen and making sure the people that follow me are at least aware of what is going on in the world. And I struggle at this, but this girl that I'm about to plug you all onto is great at it. And I think you should all follow her. And the thing is, she didn't even ask for this. She doesn't do this because she wants to be followed. She does it because she cares and she's brilliant at it. And I just want to amplify the voice that I know she already has. So her name is Rutendo and you should all follow her on Instagram in particular because that's where I follow her. And her handle is Lucy.ru. So that's L-U-U-C-Y dot R-U-E. Rutendo, you're doing amazing. We love you over here at the Afrocone podcast. And by we, I mean me and my other personalities. <laughs> And yeah, with that, we've come to the end of um, this week's episode. As usual, I'll be back again two weeks from now. Except this time, your the next guest is a surprise because I have no idea who it is either. So just just stick around. Follow follow Afrocom on all streaming platforms, and you will know when the next episode drops. I love you guys. Bye.